Amazing grace, our chains are gone. Whatever our situation, whatever our sins, whatever our failures, God's grace can redeem those. And we see that in the book of Joshua, chapter 2. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to that section or on your phones to that passage. In 1971, Ford introduced an affordable subcompact sedan called the Pinto. Some of you remember it, you're laughing because 1.5 million of them ended up being recalled. They tended to burst into flames, which isn't a particularly good thing for a car. Uh, A number of people died. There were lawsuits over it. In 1985, Coca-Cola spent $35 million to develop and to market new Coke. It lasted 77 days on the market. In 2000, Blockbuster, which is a name you don't hear much anymore, had the opportunity to buy this little upstart company that rented DVDs by mail called Netflix. They turned down the opportunity. And maybe hardest of all, in 2013, the man down there in the right-hand corner, his name is James Howells, he's a computer software engineer, he threw away a hard drive. On that hard drive were the, it was the information for 8,000 Bitcoin. Worth about $1,000 then, it's worth a, better than $150 million, even with the decline today. And if you're thinking about going to England and sorting through the dump there, others have tried. So go ahead and give it a shot, but uh, what a failure. But you know, all of those pale for us compared to the failures that you and I can think back on. Or the fear of failure as we look ahead into this fairly new year. They pale in comparison to the struggles that you may be anticipating in this new year. And I wonder as we come to Joshua chapter 2, if Israel wasn't there, thinking back over failures and struggles, thinking perhaps something like this, well, yes, God has promised us the land and and God will be with us and God is faithful, but we're not. And what will happen with our failures, past, present, and future? Joshua chapter 2 is kind of a a strange chapter in the sense that it, it seems to interrupt the flow of the story. Because you could move from chapter 1 to chapter 3 without any hint that something was missing. But Joshua chapter 2, in a very familiar story to most of us, talks to us about God's sovereign grace, about his providence over our failures. And so Joshua sends two spies into the land, and immediately we think, "Uh uh-oh, Because we remember chapter 13 and 14 of Numbers and what happened the last time spies went into the land, which is probably why we're going to see in a moment Joshua sends the spies secretly. I mean, spies are always secret, but I think it means secret from the nation. He doesn't want a repeat of that. And as we talked about the chronology last week, chapter 2 may actually occur somewhere in chapter 1 because we've got a whole three-day kind of situation. We, We can't work all that out. But certainly this story is important for Israel and for us because it reminds us 
of some encouraging reminders that we need to grab a hold of as we wonder about our failures and our struggles. So let's walk through the story together this morning and think about it. It opens with a scene and dialogue. In fact, you're going to see that throughout this passage. We have scene and dialogue in the passage. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, and especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Most of us are so familiar with the story that that last sentence doesn't shock us like it probably should. As the Israelites would have heard this, they would what in the world are they doing? Well, I can assure you they were not going into the house of the prostitute to take part in her services. But it was a logical place for two guys to go into a strange city where they would hope to be undetected. Sort of like in the the movies or the TV shows where the hero or heroine is trying to run and hide and often they will go to this kind of seedy hotel which takes cash and doesn't ask for a picture ID. And that's what these guys are doing. They're going in there because that's a place where nobody will hopefully question what they're doing in Jericho. It's also a place where they can gather information. All kinds of men went through Rahab's establishment. And so as we open the story, we see that the spies go to a prostitute's place. And that kind of shocks us. But they can gather information. They can hopefully remain hidden. And we'll see later that her house is built on or into the walls. Uh, Perhaps on it with beams that are laid across from the inner wall to the outer wall. And they can get a good view of the fortifications of Jericho from her establishment. They don't know God's plan. They don't know that the walls are all going to come down. They are simply spying out the land to see what's happening. But apparently, they're not very good at this spy business. Verse 2, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. I mean, they just get there and they're discovered. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who've come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. I mean, he uses the the same terminology. Their whole purpose is uncovered. And we reach the first tension point in the story. Will she hand them over? Now, most of you know the story, so you don't feel the tension, but you ought to. What's she going to do? And the story shows us that Rahab protects the spies. The woman had taken the men and hidden them. And then verse 6 tells us how. She had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. God was at work in Rahab's heart. We're going to see that. So that she protects the spies. She, She takes them and And in that culture, you would take flax stalks, which would be three and a half to four feet long, and you would soak them in water until they softened. Then you'd lay them out to dry and then turn them into clothes or whatever you were trying to make with it. And so she's got flax stalks up on the roof. She takes them there and she buries them in the flax stalks in case somebody comes searching the house. And immediately, we're also confronted with a question, aren't we? Why in the world is she doing this? You know, what's her angle? 
What's she after? And will they be discovered? And so the king's men come in verse 4 and say, you know, where are they? We heard they came. And she says, true, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now understand, that's an entirely plausible lie. Because in an establishment like Rahab's, you're not going to ask a lot of information. And so she says, I don't know where they came from. I didn't know where they were going. They just came and they went. And then we reach another tension point. Are they going to believe Or are they going to search her house? Are they going to poke spears down into the flax piles looking for them? The story's plausible, and God works in their hearts. And Rahab probably knows how to talk to men, and they believe the story. And so we find in verse 7, they pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out and they're trapped but the question that some of you maybe most of you are asking is not really the point of the story but we got to deal with it Rahab lied was she right or was she wrong to lie and I want to point out the Bible nowhere condones her lie The Bible also nowhere condemns her lie. So we don't have scriptural text to say Rahab was wrong specifically to Rahab. But the Bible is also very clear that God values truth and that we are to speak the truth and that God doesn't need us to preserve the lives of those spies. Rahab thought she did. He needed her. At the same time, while I do not want to say, well, her lie was good, I I want to be sympathetic to who she is. I want to be sympathetic to the fact that she is in essentially in wartime and she is being asked in wartime by the people that she is now viewing as the enemy to divulge information. And then it gets really tough. And I remember in college having a whole debate in ethics class about this, you know, and about Corey Ten Boom and her family hiding the Jews and but I, I would like to point out to you that neither Rahab nor Corey Ten Boom or most people in that uh, situation have the luxury of an ethics class debate. And while I don't want to condone what Rahab did, I want to be sympathetic to what she did because she's a pagan. And she is very, very fluent in lies, I'm quite certain. And so it's just what she does. So don't get distracted by the lie. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story, the reminder to us, is that God's gracious providence can use highly unusual circumstances. That though her lies were wrong, they weren't truth, God still in his sovereignty was able to use them. And in his sovereignty, he is able to use her as a pagan prostitute. And we look at the situation and we look at what in the world is she doing here in the book of Joshua and we just have to be reminded that God sovereignly orders the steps and the missteps of our lives for his glory so that he can even use a pagan prostitute and her lies. He doesn't need her help, but he can use those 
And that's a good reminder for us. Because whatever failures we face, maybe it's a failure at business or a failure in relationships, or maybe on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, you are experiencing guilt every year when this Sunday comes around because you've had an abortion or you've encouraged somebody to have one. I want you to understand that God's grace is bigger than our mistakes, our sins, and our failures. And his providence rules over even the sinful acts of man and weaves them into his sovereign plan. And so as we look back at failures or sins, we take them to the cross and we confess them, but we run to the God of grace. And as we look at 2023 and the challenges that may be ahead, we run to the God of grace. C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Letters talks about the fact that one of Satan's strategies is to get Christians to become preoccupied with our failures so that we then become paralyzed by the past instead of moving ahead to the glory of God. And Rahab's story reminds us of the sovereign, gracious providence of God. But who in the world is this woman? And why is she unexpectedly prominent in this book? In fact, if you read the book of Joshua, other than Joshua, she gets the most space. A Canaanite prostitute. What in the world is God doing with that? Her conversation with the spies takes up most of the chapter. Joshua gets a little bit at the beginning, a little bit at the end, but in between it's all Rahab and especially her interaction with these men. So let's look at some of the dialogue and let's think about scene and dialogue number two. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. I'd remind you that was 40 years earlier. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. More recent history and frightening to the Canaanites because the people were all killed. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. I want you to see in these verses that Rahab professes faith in God. She starts out talking about the fear that has come on all of the land. Fear has fallen on us. Terror is really what the word means. And the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That phrase means to dissolve in panic. And then she says, our hearts melted. Different words, same concept. Just the idea that, that we lost all cohesiveness and there was no spirit left, no strength left to act. But while all the rest of the Canaanites were fearful, Rahab turns in faith to God. And, and the fascinating thing to me to kind of mull over is that how did Rahab know information about God? Well, from other pagans, probably from men who visited her establishment, which is a reminder that God can use all kinds of means to get his message out because he's sovereign. 
And she says, I know, which is kind of in contrast to verses four and five, when she says, I don't know who they were, I didn't know where they were going, but she says to them, I know that the Lord, and she uses Jehovah, Yahweh, the covenant name of God for Israel. In fact, she uses it four times in verses 9 through 12. I know that Yahweh has given you, past tense, the land. Really the same thing God said back in chapter 1, verse 3, when he says to Joshua, I have given you the land. She says, I I know this is your land. God's given it to you. And then she rehearses the redemptive actions of God. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. We've heard about God's redemptive power in freeing you from Egypt. And then verse 11, the end of verse 11 is really the capstone of this section. Because she says, for the Lord, Jehovah your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. When she says, the Lord, your God, I don't think she's saying, your God, not mine. I think what she's saying is, your God, not these other gods, supposedly, of the Canaanites. He is the God in heaven above and earth beneath and everything in between. This is a confession of faith that occurs three times in the Old Testament. It occurs in Deuteronomy chapter 4 on the lips of Moses. It occurs here with Rahab and occurs in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 23 on the lips of King Solomon. So you have Moses, the lawgiver, the deliverer from Egypt, and the wisest king who ever lived, and a Canaanite prostitute. She's in pretty good company with this profession of faith, isn't she? She says, I believe in your God. He, I want him to be my God She professes faith, and then she asks for salvation. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord. She uses, actually, throughout these verses, covenant language. Make a covenant with me. Swear, that's a covenant language. Swear to me by Jehovah God, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my Father's house. That word kindly is my favorite Hebrew word. Chesed, covenant loyalty. I have shown you covenant loyalty. I've bound myself to you and to your people. Now you show me and my father's house covenant loyalty. And give me a sure sign. Give me a token of the covenant. And I'm going to suggest something to you that is not gospel truth. You don't have to go to the wall and die for this. But I just wonder, and we'll see some language later that I'll point out, I just wonder if that covenant sign, if that was the red cord that she hung out her window. You know, I used to think when I was a kid, the cord was the same rope that they went down on, but it's two different words in Hebrew. It's not what they climbed down on. I don't know why they would have had that in their bags, and maybe it wasn't, but when when she asked for a sure sign, and later they say to her, hang this cord... I think it's the sign. And we'll talk a little more about its significance in a few minutes. A sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She says, please save us alive. Save us 
from dying because I know that without this, we're doomed. So here's the encouraging reminder for us this morning. God's gracious providence reaches very unexpected people. That God sovereignly opens people's hearts by grace, even those we don't expect. And before we start saying, yeah, that's all right, people like Rahab, we ought to say, yeah, that's right, people like me. God opened my heart in his sovereign grace. And, and though I may not be outwardly as wretched as Rahab, I am still a wretched sinner in the eyes of God apart from his grace. It's kind of stunning when you think about who Rahab is and where she appears and that she gets more space than anybody but Joshua in the book and that her monologues are the longest monologues by any woman in the Old Testament. How in the world is God working in the heart of a pagan prostitute? We would have looked at her and we would have written her off probably. That's what we do with people when we don't think that that they are worth saving or can be reached. The people of Leipzig were not particularly happy when a civil servant was assigned to them to oversee the music in four Lutheran churches as their choir director and and to write cantatas and to entertain visiting royalty. They would much have preferred George Philip Telemann And when they saw who they got, they considered him to be, quote, mediocre. That was their opinion of Johann Sebastian Bach. They wrote Bach off. And how often do we write off people because we don't think that they're reachable? And this story reminds us that nobody is beyond the gracious reach of God. That family member that you've prayed for that you think they'll never believe, they're not beyond God's reach. That coworker that you think, I don't want to share the gospel with them, I, I listen to their language, I look at their lifestyle, they're not beyond the gracious providence of God. That person that you see is an outcast, that person who is, has been captured completely by the LGBTQ plus agenda, they're not beyond the reach of God. Nobody is beyond the reach of God, not even me, not even you. God's gracious providence reaches very unexpected people, and that's all of us. There's a third scene and dialogue in this passage. Look at verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall, And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. And I read those verses this week and I had two thoughts. My first thought was, huh, I wonder if she's done that before. You know, if she's helped men escape unnoticed down out of the window. It doesn't seem to be a novel idea for her. The other thought I had is, She's a whole lot better at this spy secrecy stuff than those two guys are. And her advice is, go up into the hills, wait for three days. When the pursuit's done, you can go back down, and and we'll see. They do that, and it works. And so Rahab is instrumental 
and the fact that the spies are rescued from danger. They could have, maybe by rights, should have died in that city because the gates are closed. There's no escape. What happens when the pursuers don't find anybody? Where do you think they may go first when they come back? Rahab's place. Start poking around in the flax, they'll find them. They should have, could have died, but Rahab rescues them from danger, which kind of introduces the theme of this particular section because Rahab is promised rescue from destruction. See, we need to understand who Rahab is, and it's not because she's a prostitute, it's because she's a Canaanite. She is part of a doomed people. God has told his people in Deuteronomy, go into the land, don't have anything to do with the Canaanites, wipe them out. She's doomed. And in Joshua chapter 6, we'll see the whole city, except for Rahab and her family, do die. And a little later in the study in Joshua, we'll talk about what was God doing with that. But I want you to notice that before the first Canaanite dies in the book of Joshua, we see grace. We see God reaching out in grace to this Canaanite, doomed Canaanite woman in grace. God had told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Rahab is being blessed through the line of Abraham. We haven't seen a lot of that. Oh, maybe Joseph being a blessing to Egypt. But now we come face to face with a woman who is receiving blessing through Israel, though she doesn't deserve it, because none of us do. She's promised deliverance and rescue from destruction. And so the spies say to her in verse 14, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal hesedly, kindly with you, and faithfully with you, which is actually another really good Hebrew word. Both hesed and emet, faithfulness, occur in the description of who God is in Exodus 34. So they're saying, we will show you God's kindness and God's faithfulness if you don't betray us. And then they repeat those words. And if you're just kind of reading through the story, verse 16 sounds like, you know, she starts to let them down on the rope and maybe they're hanging halfway down or maybe they've reached the bottom and she starts yelling, hey, you got to save me and my family. And they're yelling back up, well, if you do this. But the Hebrew allows for all of that dialogue to happen before she lets them down. And I think Rachel is way too smart to be standing at the top of the wall hollering down to the spies and drawing attention to them and to her. So we take these next verses as dialogue that occurs before they leave. And so they reiterate, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours you've made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord that maybe they gave her in the window through which you let us down through that window, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood will be on our head. 
But if you tell this business, see, they come back to the same theme. If you betray us, then we will be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. So that's her plan for rescue, for salvation. There's no plan B. And notice she follows through, verse 21. According to your word, so let it be. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And if you were to go to chapter 6, you'd find that those actions spare Rahab and her family from death. That cord hanging out the window, some people like to make a quick run to the cross and say it's a type of Christ's blood. I want to be careful about that because nowhere in the New Testament does it say that. But you can get there by secondary means because I think the language here is very deliberate. You are to hang this red cord out this window, this way we exited this door, let's say. And you are to gather all of your family into your house and none of them are to leave and if they leave, their death is on their heads That should sound familiar to some of you because those are very similar, even using some similar language to the instructions God gives Israel before the first Passover. You are to paint your exit, your doorway, with the red blood of a lamb. And you are to gather all of your family together in your house and if any of them leave, they will die And so I'd suggest to you that in essence what is being pictured for us here is Rahab's Passover. As she is spared not from the death angel of Exodus 12, but she is spared from the destruction and the doom that she deserves as a Canaanite in a doomed city in a doomed land. And through that you can then say, okay, this is a lot like how you and I are rescued from the doom and the destruction that we deserve in hell by the Passover lamb, by Jesus. So that you and I are doomed people apart from the grace of God. We deserve nothing more than hell, but God sent Jesus to die on the cross and his blood now provides for us a new covenant, not with spies, but with God himself. And this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, I I want you to understand that that's a key point in this story, that rescue from judgment, rescue from destruction comes only through the instructions of God given to us and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his blood for ours. So that's the encouraging reminder that God's gracious providence results in completely undeserved salvation for Rahab, for you, for me, for every person who places their faith and trust in the God who keeps his covenant. God gives sovereignly ordained salvation for sinners like you and me. We were doomed. But he not only gives salvation... He claims us as his own, and we see that in this story. You know, it's very interesting to me. Joshua sent two spies in to spy out the city of Jericho. Wasn't really needed because God was going to take care of the fortifications. 
But God sent two spies into Jericho to reach Rahab and to not only bring her out of Jericho ultimately, but bring her into the family of God because she becomes part of Israel. And if you trace the genealogy in the book of Ruth and in Matthew 1, Rahab is the great-great-grandmother of King David. And then she is in the line of the King, Jesus, the Messiah. So she's not only rescued from her destruction, she's put into God's family. And though she is always called in the New Testament the prostitute, it's never as a slur. It's always holding her up as a trophy of God's grace. And so we read in Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Faith chapter, where two women are mentioned by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And in James chapter 2, verse 25, in the same way, well, what does that mean? Look at verse 24. Abraham is the sign of faith demonstrated in works. In the same way as Abraham, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So she's lifted up next to the patriarch, next to the father of all the faithful, Abraham, as one whose actions demonstrated her faith in God. And so it's a great reminder to us that whoever we are, whatever has happened in the past, whatever our failures, that God's grace reaches further than any of those failures. And if you don't know God, that's what you need this morning is to come to faith in Him through Jesus Christ. And if you do, His grace reaches beyond our greatest failures, and we can still run to Him in those times. A number of years ago, the British Navy was conducting a wartime or a peacetime uh, naval uh, maneuver. And as part of those games, they had cruisers all lined up in a row, sailing one behind another. Then the signal was given to, to make a 90 degree turn. And all of the cruisers turned except one captain who missed the signal. And he was headed straight for the side or the one ahead of him. And, and there was a lot of maneuvering and confusion. Nobody ended up getting hit, but it threw the whole convoy into chaos. When order was finally restored, the admiral signaled from his flagship to the captain of that particular vessel, Sir, what are your intentions? The captain immediately signaled back, I plan to buy a farm. Because he understood that was the end of his naval career. One failure and he's done. But that's not true with God. He redeems our failures. His gracious providence allows us to move ahead with confidence. So very quickly, there's one last scene and dialogue. It's the epilogue. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. I want you to notice, they did what Rahab suggested and it worked out really well. But more than that, and they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given, past tense, all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Those words sound familiar? 
They're quoting Rahab. She's the star of the story. She is the one that reminds us that our failures aren't fatal. That indeed, God's sovereign providence redeems our failures and uses all kinds of situations and circumstances and reaches unexpected people and gives all of us who are in the family of faith completely undeserved salvation. So here's the bottom line in the story. To move from condemned sinner to part of the family of the king takes amazing grace. To move from a condemned Canaanite in a condemned city to being part of the family of not just David but King Jesus takes amazing grace. To move from whatever your past and my past has been, good or bad, in our human eyes, to being part of the family of God takes amazing grace. Let's pray together. If you have never experienced that grace with our heads bowed and eyes closed, can I just encourage you in this moment to cry out to God for forgiveness of your sins based on what Jesus did on the cross? And if you'd like to talk to somebody about that, seek out one of us afterwards. And if you have trusted in Christ as Savior, can I encourage you just to run to His grace? to trust his grace, to trust his providence, but more to trust his gracious heart that is for you and for me. Father, thank you for Rahab, whose scripture holds up as a trophy of your grace. But that's what we all are who've come to you by faith in Christ. So help us to live that way Help us to be evident witnesses of your grace. We pray because of the Passover lamb and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.